Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Dear Adam Silver, a podcast about sports, art, and the creative space that they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and I am an artist and longtime basketball enthusiast. My first guest today is Brian Tran, who is currently writing a novel about the economic power behind sports teams and how that impacts the cities they play in. Brian and I met while we were both artists in residence at Paul Art Space in St. Louis, Missouri. Originally from Los Angeles, Brian is a diehard Lakers and Dodgers fan. Today, Brian and I are going to discuss the narratives basketball players create for themselves, as well as the stories that are told to us about players through commercials and branding. The visual representations we see are a key factor for the way we understand who a player is, and it is increasingly important to understand who is controlling that visual. We need to look critically at these representations and ask questions in order to better understand the dynamic between the person, player, corporation, and consumer. This episode was recorded about six weeks ago, before LeBron James signed with the Lakers. We are definitely not breaking news here, so please keep that in mind. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge a recent tweet by the current man in the White House. This racist statement was sent out in response to an interview between Don Lemon and LeBron James, two prominent black men in the media. In his common, nauseating language, number 45 questioned their intelligence and ignored LeBron's funding of a new public school for underserved children in his hometown of Akron, Ohio. He then finished the tweet by saying, I like Mike, in reference to Michael Jordan and the discussion of who is the greatest basketball player of all time. As will be discussed in this episode, I am a longtime fan of Michael Jordan on the court, but LeBron sets himself apart as an activist and member of the community. Using MJ's skills and persona to disparage and ridicule other black men is petty and abhorrent. This is obvious, but I feel like I have to say it out loud. I admire LeBron James for his athletic ability and the mental strength he shows both on and off the court. He is truly a hero and is changing his hometown and the world for the better. He sets the bar higher for us all. And now, the first ever episode of Dear Adam Silver. Just because I dunk the basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kid. So, Brian, welcome to the first episode of Dear Adam Silver. So happy to have you here. We are recording this, by the way, we're recording this live from, well, not really live, but from Florissant, Missouri during a blackout. So the only electricity we have right now, well, we don't have electricity, but the only power or light source we have right now is a computer screen and a flashlight pointed at the ceiling. So that's what we're working with. All right of the now. power in this house is going towards this podcast, yeah, dear listener. Every bit of electricity is just buzzing through these microphones. Uh, well, you know, so so uh, I feel special being here. Yeah, of course. So happy to have I you. I feel very I captive. I mean, I literally can't go anywhere. Right, yeah, because yeah. of the tree that's fallen over yeah. during the, the tornado that we had earlier, yeah, yeah. or the warning. Um, Baby's first tornado. Morning, yeah. At least for me, because I'm from Los Angeles. Yeah. Right. But, but also, I, I should mention that Brian is moving out to St. Louis permanently in the fall to pursue a master's of fine arts through Washington University here in St. Louis. So All true. I'm happy to be here uh, in the dark. I guess I am. Uh, no one can tell that I'm not Adam Silver. I'm sitting in the Adam Silver seat. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, the title, Dear Adam Silver, had come from a series of letters that I had written to Adam Silver last fall, which subsequently turned into a, a body of work for me. Okay. And I have started to sort of think of him as a, an audience of mine, mm -hmm. as, a, as an artist. He is sort of the person that I am making work 
for at this point. Mm. Um, yeah, so this started because Adam Silver, last October, Adam Silver had sent out a league-wide memo to all the players, coaches, owners, reminding them that there is a rule in the NBA that requires the, uh, players to stand for the national anthem if they're on the court. This was not a rule that the NFL had at that time, which is why Colin Kaepernick was able to use uh, his his the national anthem as a time for protest by 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 kneeling during it. So Adam Silver wanted to make clear to the the people in the league that this was was uh, there was definitely a rule about it in the NBA. So I wrote a letter to Adam Silver in response to his memo, letting him know that I wasn't comfortable with that. I wasn't comfortable with him sort of exerting any more control than he might already have mm. over what someone can peacefully do with their with their own body. And I consider those protests to be quite peaceful and not and non-threatening. So I wrote to him about that, and then I just started writing to him about everything from decorating a Christmas tree to my <laughs> mother's heartbeat to butter dishes to a my own anxiety. Oh, my God. And I really just laid it all out to him, and he became the person that I was uh, wanting to respond to and to to build a bridge to through my artwork. Well, that's interesting because as, as a writer, and uh, other writers you know, kind of have this trick of a target reader. Um, right. I think... I think Famously, Kurt Vonnegut talks about um, his target reader being his sister. Um, it's a way, um, not that his... I mean, it, it's basically a way for writers to um, impose a little bit of consistency over their work so that their voice isn't kind of all over the place. Um, uh, you know, code switching in some ways or trying to please uh, various uh, populations as, as an audience. Um so yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of what it sounds like, like this ideal reader or ideal audience member um, that uh, um, is a little bit maybe idealistic. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Right, and I think that because I feel so distant from Adam Silver, he's not someone I know. I have an idea of who he is versus actually knowing who he is. So this idea because did you did you send actually send these out? No, I di I didn't send them out, and that was a. Uh, a part of it was because y I actually had turned these letters that I had written to him to into cyanotypes, which for those for those audience members who might not be familiar with this process, cyanotypes and, and, are... And those guests who have no idea. And the guests who also... Thanks, Brian, <laughs> who have no idea. Uh, cyanotypes are photographs that are made in the sun. So basically what happens is that I wrote these letters to Adam Silver. I made transparencies out of them, the type that you would put on a projector in mm. high school in some way. Um, and then I took a piece of watercolor paper and I coated it with chemistry that is sensitive to UV rays. And I took the paper outside and I put the transparency on top, which then creates a, a print using the sun mm. um, of, of all the text. Mm. So these letters that I wrote to Adam Silver, I really worked hard to turn them into pieces of pieces of artwork. So that was one reason I didn't end up actually sending them because I get worried about all of that work, all, all of these, uh, the, the time that I spent maybe, maybe just ending up in the trash or hopefully recycling at the very least. Um, so that's what kept me from kind of actually going through with, with reaching out to him in a more direct way. Right, right. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's uh, kind of a, a documentation of just whatever you were attempting to express 
to him, but but also just kind of to the rest of the world, which is which is what art is. Right, and I feel like there is a whole world of people that exists between myself and Adam Silver. I think that I relate to him as another Jewish person associated with basketball and mm-hmm. and involved with basketball, but uh, there are so many sort of levels and and uh, gaps between myself and him that the only way that I could think to to connect with him is to is to make artwork for him in a sense right yeah yeah so um enough about adam silver uh who for actually i should have said this a little while ago he's the commissioner of the nba holding the highest position uh that you can as a executive in the nba in the administration so brian can you tell me a little bit about growing up during uh Growing up in Los Angeles and how you relate to the sports teams there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I think I feel like it was a, a great time to be a sports fan um, uh, growing up when I did, which was during the eighties uh, in Los Angeles, um, because of uh, the Showtime Lakers. I mean, they were. It was. It was not only the time when the NBA sort of became a national sport, yeah. claimed its 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 place as a national sport, um, but it was. Um, I mean, it felt like the center of the basketball world was delivered to my home, you know, just watching on right. KCAL and, and Chick Hearn broadcasts. And, and um, so, so yeah, it was great. And, and I feel like the um, it's been said before that that particular brand of basketball, the Showtime Lakers, is, is so perfectly paired with um, the city from which it comes from. Uh, it feels like Hollywood entertainment. There's razzle-dazzle in it. There's... Um, just, just a lot of showmanship. Um, Jerry Buss, uh, the longtime owner, um, you know, recognized this. He he uh, uh, he dims the lights during during home games so that uh, he dims the lights on the um, on the stands so that the court it almost appears like a stage. Um, wow! And, yeah, and I didn't know that. Yeah, and it, it continues even to this day. And and the Lakers share the. Um, Staples Center with with the Clippers and the Clippers don't do that, so it it feels um, like it's almost trademarked uh, for for the Lakers. And um, so yeah, I mean uh, that's that's kind of how I um, came to experience uh, basketball, um, not just as a game that was really exciting to watch because. Um, because they won a lot, yeah. uh, but but also just as a really great form of entertainment, um, season after season, be because of its entertaining play, and I think that's one of the reasons why I really love basketball as as well is that, um, I mean, sure, you know, most people who watch sports are gonna say, yeah, it's really entertaining, right. um, but I feel something that seems really particular to um, basketball and the NBA is that, um, I mean thinking of it uh, through a lens of storytelling um, and, you know, certainly growing up in Los Angeles, being adjacent to Hollywood and, and more kind of formulaic storytelling. Um, you know, I, I, I think of uh, it not just as sort of a TV show or a movie, but a soap opera and that these are characters and that uh, um, it's really great to watch these players uh, because I feel like the, basketball is is seems to me at least um the most human sport uh, i don't know if you feel that way yeah i mean i so i 
have to admit that it is also, of course, the, the sport that I am I am most drawn to as well. And But I am curious about your description of it being the most human sport, and if you could elaborate a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the, the characters are exposed in some way. I mean, um, just in terms of... Uh, in terms of their uniform, so literally exposed, uh, and certainly in the 80s, um, you know, to, to, to look back at, at their uniforms. I mean, the, the players are wearing short shorts. They're wearing tank tops. They're bearing Right, but weren't skin. they also wearing higher socks? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, right. I'm sure to, to, to compensate, <laughs> especially someone like Michael Cooper um, is, uh, yeah. is, is wearing uh, nearly knee-high socks. Um, I haven't thought about that in years, so, so thank you for bringing <laughs> that image back to my mind. Of course. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, they're just not only literally exposed, but I feel like because there are less players on the court at one given time, d- during, during um, uh, w- while the game is being played, um, there's just more at stake and more on the shoulders of each individual player when the game is actually being played. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels like um, each player's role is magnified, and it's certainly very much a star-driven league. Um, it, that that's certainly what kind of brought um, the sport into national attention. Yeah, it of was, course. Um, you know, bird and magic, and then and, and then those rivalries were so valuable right. to the league that there was teams that waited all year to play each other. It was a league of storylines, um, and so. Um, if we're to m- maybe reach a little bit, I mean, the 80s, we think of the Cold War and the United States versus versus the USSR. Um, and this was almost this like returning two huge giants um, who would always kind of meet in the, fi- not always meet in the finals, but um, met year after year. And so it, it certainly- Household names. Like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly- um, still to this day a um uh, a sport in a league of real personalities where um it's not just about skill and strategy um entering into the um and dictating the the results of the game it it's also about i mean the 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 outcomes of a team's success um, so often comes down to like this referendum on the star player's character mm-hmm, and, definitely. and, and um, sort of how um, how cutthroat they are or, or how clutch they are. These are all things that suggest an interiority, which is which is something I love just as um, as an artist and as a storyteller and, and, and the type of art that I um, that I enjoy uh, consuming is is when um, there's a bit of a, conne- a personal connection to characters. In this case, it's a personal connection to to, to players. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a rich interiority that gets litigated when a player does or does not, you know, sort of win it all or, or fall or short. Or do they pass the ball for the game-winning shot? Or do they take it themselves? Right. Things like yeah. that. Yeah, it comes down to character not necessarily skill um and that may be false but that's still the conversation around the game of basketball and that is also a huge mental that that being able to perform in such a way has as much to do i believe with physical skill as it does with the mental Mm -hmm. uh, capacity you have to handle that kind of pressure to make the the right decision 
or to to trust your teammates, to trust yourself um, on this this sort of stage that we've been talking about, so that those things are not uh, the the physical element and the mental element are very much tied together. Okay, so this brings me to um, what uh, wh- what you set up as kind of uh, the the issue at hand, which is um, which is which is Kobe, um, and, Kobe. And, and and the player that um, uh, I have kind of the most um, uh, storied relationship with. Um, I, I, Tell I, me I, more about that. Well, I started, like, <laughs> so, you know, like, as a kid, um, I kind of, like, followed it, but which was just enjoying it as, as entertainment and perhaps didn't think about it too, um, I guess, critically. Um, yeah, you want to you see your team win, and that's really the only, that's the exciting part. As a, ch- as a kid, right. you're not really following along to any of the other narratives. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, and also I was, I was a kid, and, and, you know, kids kids tend to be maybe stupid and dumb. Or just undeveloped. Okay, undeveloped. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go with that. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't thinking of it uh, sort of too critically. And later on in my adult life, when I was able to pair just a real um, enjoyment of the game and, and able to kind of think of it critically, um, that's um, Kobe Bryant was, was the player that was most at the fore of, of um, uh, my intention. And so... Um, just in context of everything that we just talked about, um, physical skill uh, and yeah. ability versus character. So I feel like one thing that he insists and and the, the, the mythos of what he kind of creates around himself is that it's all character and he downplays his skill. Interesting. And I think it's it's ridiculous because there's a little bit of recency bias. If you go back, I mean, he, it was a really uncompetitive dunk contest, but he won the dunk contest when he was a a rookie. I mean, he was supremely athletic, like, you know, incredibly gifted and obviously incredibly skilled, Mm -hmm. but he wants you to keep in mind that the skill was learned, that he went through the work obtaining and acquiring that skill and he still he still focuses on that even after achieving yeah detail exactly kobe ryan's uh show through espn where he analyzes a different player's game each time sort of pointing out either what they did wrong what did they did right or how to defend that particular player so he's still very focused on on the i mean he's he's almost considered like sort of presenting himself as an artist, right? Like he is teaching a master class mm-hmm. on totally. the game. Um, it is not just a matter of like, I am supremely gifted uh, or uh, I've, I was born with these t- skills um, and uh, uh, that, that, that there's much more sort of intellect and character that goes into what made him the player that he is. And so, uh, yeah, I sort of feel like he wants the world to believe that um, his gifts are not God-given, mm-hmm. uh, but that they're man-made, and that he is the man kind of responsible for making um, kind of the genius or the um, sort of powerhouse talent that he yeah. is. Um, and that's just a narrative that he pushes over and over and over and over again, even to the point of describing other players. And so um, certainly one of the players that he is 
paired up with uh, quite a bit is 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 Shaq, of course. Right. So, but the way he describes Shaq is Shaq is the most physically dominant s- player who has ever played, which which is probably true, by the way. But it is still kind of this description of look at Shaq's body. How could he not? Right, dominant. how he was born. Of course right. he would be the most physically dominant player. He didn't have to put he, in the time. He talks about LeBron in the same way. He talks about LeBron br- being a freight train bearing down on you. Uh, he, I mean, he doesn't really talk about Steph because he is, um, they're not quite contemporaries and they're not, they're not sort of um, uh, shoved into the same mm-hmm. context. But even with Steph, there's something there's something kind of magical about his game where like it's it feels it feels miraculous it feels God given, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like the reason why people love Kobe's game is the aesthetics of this magic trick of um, a somewhat um, down to earth. Nothing extraordinary about his his body necessarily in comparison to the um, other basketball players. Uh, still managing to beat the odds, um, transcend his own physical limitations. Again, he is ridiculously talented and athletic. And also the son <laughs> of a basketball player. Right, absolutely. Um, but he still wants to present himself as 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 John McClain. John McClain. Anybody? Anybody? Anybody John in the room? Okay, we, we have a couple <laughs> semi-producers in. Okay. Um, die Hard. Okay. We die have hard. to cut that out because I don't want everyone to know I'm an idiot. <laughs> okay. So shut um, it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, John McClane um, is, 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 of course, uh, the, the main character in Die Hard. And, and that's sort of the, um, it is the one, one dude who outsmarts and uh, just outmaneuvers and uh, you know kills most of most of the an entire sort of like building of terrorists, right? It is one person. Um, the odds are against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you see this in other action movies as well, with like Rambo. It is Rambo, like one person just mowing everybody down. James Bond is one person who doesn't have like a partner in crime and he is able to sort of um, get in t- into these like incredibly precarious and dangerous situations and still come out relatively unscathed. And Kobe, I feel like understands um, the inherent sort of Hollywoodness of basketball, um, which is it's, um, he understands the, the, the root of drama. Mm-hmm. Drama is high stakes. Drama is high degree of difficulty. And I feel like in addition to just sort of presenting himself as John McClane and doing it all, um, he understands that the movie that is encasing this character of Kobe Bryant also needs to be, um, it, is w- it, it, it is under the most sort of ridiculous circumstances in which he is succeeding. And so it's, it's kind of like the... Uh, the reasons why his haters will kind of knock him in doing in playing inefficient uh, uh, hero basketball is the reason why his stands love him. Is that he is the player who will, when he's triple teamed, 
still shoot a jump shot over them instead of <laughs> instead of right, passing yeah. the ball. Yeah. I mean he he is the guy who is who insists on doing it all because he is the only person who is possibly capable of it. But like I mean I understand that that's not good basketball. <laughs> but like as a fan, it is really thrilling to mm-hmm. watch because it's it is your star player going up against the the you know, five five members of a, a you know a, of the of the defense, um, and and how can we sort of compare that to say Steph Curry, who doesn't need to have the ball to be extremely valuable. He is valuable when right. he is just running around the court because he's such a threat. But at the same time, he spends a lot of time dribbling in ways that to try to bait or trick or. Um, sort of almost humiliate sometimes his opponents and then he'll miss the shot when he is being guarded so closely and there there might not be that same situation with with another player on his team but the Warriors have also trademarked this we're going to pass the ball Mm -hmm. until we get the shot Mm -hmm. and then there is this like sort of more flashy razzle dazzle these moves that Steph has where he's trying to sort of uh put the nail in the coffin or put, you know, start by putting one nail in the coffin, whether it's the first or the last, he wants to you know, run these personal moves to really uh, hammer something home to the opponent. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'll, I'll give my quick take, but sure. really, uh, if this is, it, it, it should be said that you are the Golden State uh, Warrior fan, right? Right. I, uh, yeah, so I'm from just south of San Francisco, and I grew up watching the Warriors, supporting the Warriors. Also growing up in the 1990s, because the Warriors most of the time were out of the picture, by uh, later in the season uh, and the playoffs that I was often a Chicago Bulls fan after a certain point of the year and was entranced, had a crush on, wanted to be Michael Jordan. And he still sort of holds a lot of a lot of power wait, for let's me. Wanting to be like Mike is, is what you want to say. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to be like Mike and sometimes still do uh, in many ways, but also as I have grown up and he has... Uh, do you, do you ch- do you channel him when you cry? Do you do cry, <laughs> crying Jordan? Memes? We're not talking about crying Jordan. We, this we podcast, shut it down. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, that's oh just not. God. It's not a meme I'm willing to interact with in <laughs> any way. So I mostly <laughs> that was kind of a fake laugh on my part. I mostly try to not engage directly <laughs> with the crying Jordan meme because I have an image in my mind of Michael Jordan clutching his first NBA. Uh, trophy in 1991 mm. and crying. Yeah. It's this really beautiful image. Uh, anyone can Google it and pull it up. It stayed with me this whole time. I've, I've kept copies like of it with me. His at, father uh, right. is, is hugging him to and, the and, side. And, and that pairs with when he won it in, I think, 95, right? They um, didn't win it in 95, 96, or I'm sorry, 96. He, he also sort of breaks down yeah, and so cries. Yes, he was laying down on the floor which then. Which was, was sort of in the shadow of his, his father's murder. According to authorities, Jordan was killed along this stretch of North Carolina Highway in the early morning hours of July 23rd. Driving to Charlotte, he apparently had pulled over to rest and was shot in his car. So this idea that it was powerful to me that Michael Jordan was was showing showed emo- his emotions both physically he was he was he's a dominant basketball player mm. in a, this like very sort of masculine way but also that he he had these real emotions that were so wrapped up in the game 
and so wrapped up in like what he could or could not accomplish. So I so, don't so, appreciate so did, did any that distortion of Michael Jordan crying mm. um, in a way I, I or that that is sort of something to be um, not made fun of, but just, yeah, I mean, made fun of that. It's like it's funny that he has this face when he's crying. It, for me, it's, it's no, but I, I think that's yeah. really interesting that you had this sort of personal connection to that where it seemed like you were like that was almost sort of like describing or expanding a sense of masculinity for you. Totally. Perhaps. I mean, I, I talk about that all the time, that that image is the image that I hold on to the most from that era because it showed me that basketball players don't just play basketball. Right. And to go back to what we said before, it's it's a, it's a soap opera. It's such a human drama, such a such a really sort of rich and, and potent human drama. Right, um, and that that, that having his family members there, it's like we're all th- that they are drawn into it. We, the family is all a part right. of it. That it's not just about this one player; it's about this experience. That you know that that the fans, the witnesses to the game, we get a small taste of that. I can't imagine what it would be like if it was your son, it was mm-hmm. your daughter, it was your your brother whoever your mother also experiencing that and so I, I felt that that image I had so many more layers to mm-hmm. it and now this sort of corruption of Michael Jordan crying feels sort of violating to my own <laughs> perception of him well now I feel like an well you should okay all right <laughs> um, that's settled and so yes I I yes I am saying that I I've loved Michael Jordan for a really long time and as I've grown up I've realized that there are certain things that maybe that let's say LeBron James very very willing to speak out on social issues very willing to take a stand and be sort of open and honest with with where he lies politically which I think is a very important thing uh, an important thing to maybe do I mean no one has to do it but it's an important thing to do at any time but especially right now mm-hmm. in the times that we that we live in and also that he's willing to do that playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers which which is now or was most recently a red state and he's willing to sort of stand up for what he he believes whereas Michael Jordan was not was not ever willing to do that so there are things that I really admire about other players where I say oh so maybe Michael Jordan the idea that I had of Michael Jordan just like the idea that I have of Adam Silver might be more compelling to me than than the reality but at the same time there's something so magical about what Michael Jordan was able to do physically and also just the way that he spoke about about work about trying again about picking yourself back up um about coming back harder so as an eight-year-old listening to Michael Jordan on my you know VHS set of three of three biographies of him it was so powerful to hear him speaking about his work ethic and the belief that he had in himself and this drive that he had to always be better and those were really powerful I still think that athletes sometimes are the most inspiring Mm -hmm. inspiring figures because nothing that they accomplished can be done without this like pure dedication and belief that they're trusting the process not to be a total cliche but athletes trust the process as successful athletes trust the process and so I really I found that those his words going into my head when I was a child they still resonate with me today Mm -hmm. but it was a really positive he's a really positive influence well I mean and and to put him across from uh, his contemporary um, he was a role model in the way that Charles Barkley announced that he was not a role model I am not a role model Right, and but also then subsequently was not a role model necessarily well, when he so I Michael <laughs> Jordan ended up saying like yeah. 
you guys shouldn't care or cover what I do in my free time. Yeah. Like, you know, kind of off a little bit. Something that I have to remember, which I didn't realize as a as a child, is that Michael Jordan, by through his relationships with huge companies like Gatorade, like Nike, like Hanes Underwear, like McDonald's, he was sort of packaged and sold to the American public and to the worldwide public in a way that made him feel or made us feel that he was charming. Um, you know, for he was very sort of attractive, sexy. Um, that he was just always in the right place at the right time, totally in control, this this larger-than-life figure, which, you know, we saw what he was able to do on the court, and he always had the right thing to say in the in the commercials, the most, you know, timely, charming, uh, you know, end of the commercial with, like, a one-liner or something like that. And these are, you know, relevant to also today's situation with, with LeBron James uh, forming a lifetime partnership with Nike, putting on his Instagram his face covered... In, in Nike branding, uh, the Nike logo uh, all over his face. I think it's really important when we think about, especially when we think about black athletes, how they are being sold to us. And I hate to use the word sold because that word is so fraught and heavy with, with the historical uh, use of the black body from, from times of the enslavement uh, of, of African people. I think it's really important, though, to recognize that that this is um, an ongoing occurrence with with the most dominant players in in pro sports in general and and but when we're talking about football and basketball we're talking about majority black athletes and 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 many of the times the the best players especially in basketball are are african american and this idea of them being sort of uh, packaged in a way to make them to make the American public feel a certain way about them and, and find them accessible and find them uh, charming in some way also feels th- very, very dangerous to me. And, and there's an artist named Hank Willis Thomas who, who touches on this very much in his in his artwork. And, and I recommend anyone who's, who's interested more in how we, uh, how we view athletes through, through, or the black athlete through their, their role and and their relationship to these bigger companies, I would encourage them to to look at his work. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean that that's so interesting because I'm uh, that that sort of reminds me in the sort of you know maybe earnest. I mean, there's obviously a cynical way we can look at it, but but the earnest attempt to uh, kind of glorify um, a black athlete, um, perhaps falsely. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the magical Negro trip, um, which oh, yeah. is is I mean, there's a little bit of that in, um, or maybe not so uh, little, but but there's it's present there in literature. It's it's perhaps more recognizable in in movies, um, the Green Mile. The um, uh, there's a bit of that in um, that film, the Jim Sheridan film in America. There's um, that I'm forgetting the name of it, but that Will Smith, Matt Damon golf movie. Um, <laughs> and, and check. right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, again, this like uh, seemingly earnest attempt to sort of present this, this friendly, um, uh, depiction of, uh, an African-American, 
But really, um, it just further exoticizes uh, and and doesn't make this this character um, human and relatable. Um, which again, like that, just touches back on on something problematic about what Kobe is doing. Um, it, it, sort of rewriting his his uh, his identity as somebody who. Um, is is all character is all work ethic um is by sort of you know contrasting it with like this otherworldly body of shaquille or or lebron i mean we talked about steph and we we have yet to answer that question your earlier question about steph um but yeah that that there's something so unrelatable and otherworldly um and dominant uh about these bodies and there is an element there of, of, um, of race and of then his, um, I mean, he is, he obviously has fans of, of all different races, but you know, there's, there's, um, a trickiness there with, um, I think some of his, his white fans, um, buying into this presentation of, somebody who is able to transcend their own physical limitations, especially in direct opposition to the unfairness of LeBron James's body, the unfairness of Shaquille O'Neal's just physical dominance. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I also think that when we talk about exoticizing, that can also be that we are seeing someone in a perfect light all the time almost mm-hmm. that we're seeing we were seeing michael jordan be so dominant on the basketball court sort of defying gravity being this this revolutionary force in the game of basketball with what he could do in in midair and then we're also seeing him being charming at mcdonald's mm-hmm. and sort of uh you know wowing women as he walks down the street wearing his Hanes underwear and joking around with his dad and his wife in their in their living room about what underwear he wears like it's all just it's just there's not a break from this this they're beyond anything that anyone else could could strive for because they're they're so they're so perfect Uh, which of course is like directly contradicted by so many other things but at the same time we are being fed a narrative by right. by the media, and I think that that also for particular players. I mean, maybe that is why Michael Jordan is not really present in any way, like through the media or on social media in a in a personal way. But that uh, at least I feel like LeBron, uh, I- there is this possibility to to insert yourself into into the narrative um, in a way that was not when when Michael Jordan was at his peak. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, Michael Jordan, uh, I think, benefited from not not playing in the era of Twitter, which for me is so inseparable to consuming the game now, uh, today. Um, I feel like LeBron is um, sort of this, you know, maybe the first um, uh, Twitter basketball player in, in the sense that... that um, uh, he came of age while this sort of attention of Twitter is is directed on him. I mean, it feels like there is um, he. It's almost like uh, an added consciousness for him, mm-hmm. I- in the way that um, you know. Uh, it's a tool. It's a complete tool. 
Well, right. But I think in sort of, again, we're, we're kind of investigating the impossible here. We're investigating uh, his interiority. Um, but it seems like um, something like Twitter is, is, you know, to kind of like borrow and, and very loosely uh, adapt like W.E.W.B. Du Bois's like concept of double consciousness, that there is an added consciousness there where mm-hmm. where that kind of like direct line from fan to player and the attention and the chatter about clutchness or the chatter about true champion and 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 uh um and all of that stuff all of the Sk- skip bayless uh type of 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 hating mm-hmm. um is is a part of his game um and it was certainly in like 2010 2011 when he kind of fell short of of becoming a champion yeah um but yeah, and, and it feels like players now have to account for that uh, because as fans, we sort of project this interiority onto them because, again, it feels like very much a, a human sport where their own character is responsible for whether or not they win or lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and and whether know, we feel good about that winning or losing. Right. Um, you know, I, 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 think, I think with Kobe, I think this is why... Um, he's had to, one of the reasons why he's had to kind of like reinvent himself and we talk about him presenting himself in a particular way. There's something in literature called the unreliable narrator. Um, I, 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 he's somebody who clearly cares about narratives. Um, and he himself is writing that narrator, but we have to consider him an unreliable unreliable narrator um you know read any nabokov and uh and and you know you'll you'll have an example of uh an unreliable narrator but it's basically somebody who uh can't be trusted with the truth with their version of the truth um and he is constantly having to i mean we mentioned it before with some of the examples um it's almost like he is downplaying his skills or if we're to if we're to believe him he's actually not a remarkable athlete um, it, that that it, call, it it all comes from his own work ethic mm-hmm. um, and everything else. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I feel like Twitter is is partly responsible for ha- him having to um, sort of reinvent himself uh, in in different stages of his life. I mean, um, players often get uh, nicknames. Um, it, I think it's telling that every single nickname attached to him has come from him. Really do want to thank you so much, Brian, for your time and you know sharing your thoughts about Kobe and and your experience as a as a Lakers fan and as a basketball fan. And I think that uh, yeah, I just really I appreciate you coming on and being my first guest and being patient with me. It was so much fun. I can't wait to listen to more. Thanks again to Brian Tran for being a great first guest. Hopefully, he will be back on in the future to go further into this conversation. And I hope you will all be back for the next episode. Thanks for listening.